There's a song I used to play early on in my career in radio. It was by Helen Reddy, Jason. It was You and Me Against the World. Can't say I'm real familiar with that one. It goes back in the easy listening days of It does, your it does. But, uh, Probably it's, was a record. Something about me, especially my age. Uh, and this is the Midday Program on the Rural Radio Network, and welcome to it. Uh, we have two empty chairs today, the business chair and the ag chair. Both go uh, unoccupied at this moment. A rarity. It really is, which means we have a six-minute talk show on sports today. And now here's your host, Jason Jorgensen. You're not going to give us the lowdown of what's coming up with our newsmaker and... <laughs> I wish Some I could. Other, Let's see, you, I do we, have uh, University of Minnesota's Dr. Ken Ostley, who will be talking about insects and beans. Okay. So far, that's the only clue I have okay. right. as to what the uh, ag team is working on. But they're spread all over the place. I don't, I don't blame them. They're spread all over the place, from California to Omaha, Nebraska, doing just about every show that's open right now across the face of this country. There is plenty to talk about in sports. Okay. Big Ten basketball tournament starts today. Iowa will be in action later on this afternoon. They'll have the first game against Illinois. Now they have changed things up uh, with the Big Ten tournament. It's taking place in New York, New York City, Madison Square Garden. It's a week earlier so yeah. they could get that venue. And they're doing it. I guess for publicity, for exposure. <laughs> so, well, I, I, I guess that'll do it. If anyone in New York is going to be uh, interested in Big Ten basketball. Yeah, I would care. And this is the first time that the Huskers actually have avoided the first two rounds. Yeah, yeah. So they get the double bye, they call it. They will not play until Friday afternoon. And they'll score off against uh, either probably going to be Michigan. Uh, and then they're saying the Huskers have to win that one and then have to find a way to beat Michigan State to get into the NCAA tournament, which I, I just scratched my head at that. Well, if they're peaking at the right time, anything's possible. They'll need to be peaking if they're going to beat those two. They certainly will have deserved their spot in the NCAA tournament if, if that happens. Do you think, uh, along with so many other people, that playing Michigan is key because they're a big, you know, they, we don't want Michigan to get upset. They want to beat Michigan so they can get a quality win. And they'd beaten them before. Badly. Yeah. So Nebraska got the tiebreaker over them to earn the fourth seed, but Michigan is going to get into the NCAA tournament before Nebraska because it's Michigan. Michigan. And Nebraska has no history in the NCAA tournament of winning a game. So we'll touch on that coming up in sports. Also, the Royals, they have found the replacement for Eric Hosmer. Well, who is it? Lucas Duda. Ah, really? Really? He's hit some home runs with the Mets in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they signed him, so... He'll By like the way, do you know where Eric Hosmer is now? <laughs> no, I do not. Scott's is favorite team. a San Diego Padre. Oh, no, really? Yeah. Okay. So he'll, we'll never hear from him again. It's kind of like a vice president. You never hear from him again. Scott so. Foster snuck in here. I don't I know did. if you noticed that. Did you bring some business headlines with you? Just <laughs> a very little bit. A lot of people were expecting a major crash from Dick Sporting Goods after their announcement that they wouldn't sell and uh, that hasn't happened. Otherwise, Dow Jones is uh, up 91 points. All right. Very good. Well, we have, uh, we'll have it covered one way or another. I'm sure that stuff will just start pouring in as, as soon as I turn off the microphone here. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 
springtime. And here's the man who brings it to you, Paul Perkins. Yeah, we're going to get a taste of that this weekend. We could see some thunderstorms by Sunday. Good heavens. It's been a long time since I've seen that uh, three-syllable word in a forecast. Exactly, yeah. Right now, we got quite a bit of cloud cover, though, still over southeast Nebraska and central and east Kansas, especially if you're along and south of line from Omaha to south of Lincoln to about Superior, Phillipsburg and Hill City. That's where we do have mostly cloudy skies. Also, a little bit of drizzle is possible in those areas today, but luckily the temperatures are staying above freezing. Most of our temperatures right now about 35 to 42. Holdridge Irrigation, your Ranky dealer, is bringing you this 880 Weather Watch and our Ag Weather with Paul Perkins. We do have a warm-up on the way, don't we? Exactly, yeah, especially by tomorrow. For today, we have high pressure pushing in from the northwest, keeping most of us sunny to partly cloudy. That drizzle, a possibility through this evening across central and east Kansas into southeast Nebraska. That's thanks to an area of low pressure tracking northeast out of Oklahoma. Today looks to be our coolest day all the way through the weekend. That nice warm-up starts for tomorrow into the weekend ahead of a large trough of low pressure across the western U.S. That's going to result in a warm south flow. Saturday looks to be our warmest day with highs into the 60s and even some 70s. Overnight lows expected to stay above freezing for many areas Friday night and Saturday night. That'll be a switch. Our extended period of warmer air could be enough, though, to dislodge river ice locations along the Platte and Loop Rivers. You may want to watch out for possible ice jams and flooding. That area of low pressure will track onto the plains for Sunday. This low could be far enough north that thunderstorms are possible late on Sunday. That rain and snow possible Sunday night into Monday morning, but thunderstorms will likelihood, especially as you head into Kansas. But even portions of Nebraska could be in on some thunderstorm activity on late in the day Sunday. In our long-term forecast, temperatures, though, for Nebraska and Kansas could turn towards the cooler side. We are forecast to be slightly colder than normal Monday through March 13th in both Nebraska and Kansas. In the early half of March, central Nebraska daytime highs usually average in the upper half of the 40s with overnight lows on average in the low 20s. Both Nebraska and Kansas expected to see near normal to below normal precipitation Monday through March 13th. Our weather factors driving the markets include no significant rain for Argentina, dryness concerns in the southern plains, and improving conditions in Brazil for the soybean harvest. Today and tomorrow, another significant precipitation event will perpetuate flooding across the Mid-South and Lower Midwest with the heaviest rain expected from Northeast Texas into the Tennessee Valley. From the Great Lakes into the Northeast, transportation problems are likely from accumulating snow and gusty winds. More transportation issues likely as the storm drifts eastward and results in snow across portions of the north central U.S. early next week with that major storm that could give us thunderstorms. The Southern Plains wheat areas are likely to remain mostly dry the next 10 days. Rain needed when dormancy breaks. It's a different story farther north where there's more snow cover. Winter wheat believed to be doing well with 54% of the Montana crop rated good to excellent. In Argentina, losses are occurring for corn and soybeans in the filling stage. It's expected to remain mostly dry the next seven days and only a few showers may occur. In central Brazil, it's somewhat drier and warmer for crop areas of Mato Grosso after a wet period. That's going to help improve efforts to pick the soybeans and harvest and also attempts to plant the second crop corn. Information brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer, and uh, I guess uh, that's one way to get rain, and they would probably <laughs> do just about anything to get some rain in Argentina right now. Yeah, that's definitely uh, putting some upward pressure on the markets right yeah. now. Uh, of course, it's good news for us up here, but yeah. uh, hopefully we will get some rain this weekend. That'll be a lot easier to scoop. 
See a lot of traders <laughs> turning handsprings on that news. So if you exactly. see them, you might just, you know, bring them back down to earth, let them know that this can't last forever. Exactly. Yeah. All right, when you need weather anytime, you could go to krvn.com. The U.S. is tamped for another WTO complaint. There may be rough waves ahead for the U.S. beef industry in China. And the first White House Renewable Fuels meeting didn't go quite as planned, so it looks like another meeting could happen before the week is out. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Vietnam has filed for World Trade Organization consultations between it and the U.S. over the Vietnamese imports of swai or basa fish. In the complaint, Vietnam claims U.S. measures relating to the inspection, marketing, and labeling of the imports are inconsistent with provisions in the World Trade Organization's agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary SPS measures. The dispute is just the latest development in a long-running argument that sees the U.S. catfish industry and the U.S. government on one side and the Vietnamese swai and basa industry and Vietnamese government on another side. The latest twist specifically concerns enhanced regulatory authority given to the USDA over the penguinish fish in 2008 and 2014 farm bills. The bills assigned USDA with greater responsibility to inspect and monitor the production of the penguinish fish intended for import to the U.S. The request formally initiates a dispute at the World Trade Organization. Consultations give the parties an opportunity to engage with the goal of finding a mutually agreeable solution without proceeding to further WTO litigation. After 60 days, if consultations fail to resolve the dispute, the claim may request a judgment by a panel. The U.S. being challenged by other countries in the World Trade Organization is nothing new. Currently, there are six WTO complaints against the U.S. since November 2017, and the complaints range from governing of wine sales to countervailing duties and dumping of products into the global supply chain. To put that into perspective, in that same time frame, there have only been two other complaints against other countries. In cattle news, Nebraska was the first state to export beef to China in 2017 after nearly 14 years of being shut out of the country. Of the current beef exports to China, it's estimated that 50% or more of those exports come directly from Nebraska. Unfortunately, there's a new shift in taste happening in China that is threatening U.S. beef exports. A recent PTI report suggests that more and more people in China are switching to a vegetarian food diet. In China, a country where the world's largest market for beef, pork, and poultry eateries are all going vegan to encash on this popular sentiment. The report hints that people relate non-vegetarian food with high blood pressure and obesity. Han Lilly, a Shanghai-based artist, told PTI that the number of vegan restaurants has multiplied from 49 in 2012 to more than 100 in 2017 in China's largest city, Shanghai. Meat processors and exports may have to up their marketing game to stop the shrinking animal protein market in China. Finally today, President Trump requests another meeting to hear ethanol industry's side of the renewable fuel standards debate. This news comes after yesterday's meeting to reform the RFS between Senator Charles Grassley, Senator Joni Ernst, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, and Senator Ted Cruz. Following the meeting in a joint press conference, both Iowa senators said there was no deal made and that they were glad to see the president's concern that if the ethanol industry is hurt, it stands to hurt many people. Senator Cruz, on the other hand, released a statement following the meeting saying he believed there was progress made at the meeting. The good news is, is that Senator Cruz lifted his hold on Bill Northey to USDA and that another meeting between renewable fuel industry stakeholders and the president may happen as soon as tomorrow. 
even with a schedule as busy as a U.S. president's. It's good to see that time is being made for agriculture products and ag producers. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row and keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. You know you've got an interesting product on hand when entomologists get excited. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Commodity Classic is underway. An opportunity with BASF to learn about some new products last night, but more importantly, to talk to the entomologists who are excited at what it could bring. Ken Osley is an entomologist at the University of Minnesota. Inscalis is a new product with a, a brand new mode of action being developed by BASF. And... Uh, when it deals to managing insects and soybean and the newly developing resistance of soybean aphid to pyrethroid insecticides, we're eager for new alternatives that would give us a different mode of chemistry, a different action that would hopefully alleviate some of the resistance concerns that are evolving. Pyrethroids have been the backbone of our soybean aphid management through the years. They've been complemented a little bit by chlorpyrifos, uh, which is an older organophosphate. Um, it's, it's a type of chemistry that has been on EPA's hit list for years, and we never know when it's going to disappear. And on the other side, uh, the newly, you know, the newer neonics have been added as uh, either new standalone products or mixes with pyrethroids. And so that means that we don't have a lot of diversity out there. Uh, the, besides in Scalus, there's a newer chemistry coming in called Savanto, but it's a slower acting one. And we're used to products that are you know, we see the problem emerging. We need something with a rapid kill situation. And uh, Savanto is a little slower on the kill. So you have to think about managing soybean aphids with Savanto completely differently. Um, one of the challenges we always have with soybean aphids is a very uh, um, potential rapid increase in the population because these things can double if conditions are favorable within two to five days and uh, somebody did a calculation one time that they estimated there are as many as 15 generations during the course of the summer so if conditions turn favorable for them um, or we do things a little bit stupid like take the natural enemies out of the picture or um, apply them with the fungus, you know, or use a fungicide that takes the natural uh, insect-killing fungi out of the picture, then we can see these populations blow up rather quickly. And it sounds like it lets you be target-specific on the formulation. Well, so if you look at the older chemistries, whether we're talking chlorpyrifos or the pyrethroids, you get a broad kill of the, including natural enemies as well as the target. Um, that means that survivors are now in a zone with no natural enemies. And they can rapidly build up. And so sometimes in the past we've seen the need for repetitive applications because the survivors have just taken off and, and exploded in population density. So. Having a more selective product is going to be crucial from a couple of standpoints. One is it preserves more of the natural enemy function out there. 
and that will not only potentially help us with soybean aphid. My conversation with Dr. Ken Osley, entomologist with the University of Minnesota. Commodity Classic continues in Anaheim, California. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check sports now with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, New York's Madison Square Garden is a host site of the Big Ten Basketball Tournament. Iowa begins play this afternoon against Illinois. Now, the top four seeds are Michigan State, Ohio State, Purdue, and Nebraska. The Huskers will not play until the quarterfinals on Friday afternoon. Marcus Foster had 20 points, and Kyrie Thomas added 16 as Creighton ran away from DePaul in the second half on their way to an easy 82-57 win. That helps them clinch a top-six spot in the upcoming Big East Conference Tournament. And Kansas State's NCAA Tournament hopes hit a bump on the road last night, losing to TCU 66-59. Brenly Doms' darting layup in the final second lifted the Concordia women's basketball team to a 90-88 win over Dakota Wesleyan. As the Bulldogs took the GPAC tournament title, it was a big night for Dom, the native of McCook, who poured in a game-high 21 points while adding four assists and a couple of steals. Head coach Drew Olson says these are the type of games that make basketball fun. I, I said this before the game, that's why you come to Concordia. To, play, to be a women's basketball player, you get to experience this kind of stuff. To play in big games, in front of great crowds, uh, with a team that just loves each other. And, and man, that, that's, a, that's a fun night that those kids are always going to remember. Concordia improves to 32-1 and on the season. The men's game was also tight with Morningside holding off Northwestern for the title 80-76. to UNK Athletic Director Dr. Paul Plinsky is one of the five finalists for the open position at Colorado State Pueblo. Five finalists will be on campus next week for community meet and greets. CSU Pueblo must replace Athletic Director Joe Fulda, who will retire in April. Plinsky has spent the last five years in Kearney at UNK. The Royals have found this year's replacement for Eric Hosmer at first base. The club announced today that it has signed Lucas Duda to a one-year deal. Duda, who's 32, is a left-handed hitter from L.A. He split time last year between the Mets and Tampa Bay, being acquired by the Rays in late July. He combined to hit 30 home runs on the year, matching his previous career best from 2014. And district finals wrapped up last night across the state in Nebraska high school boys basketball. The boys state basketball tournament is set for next week. Omaha Central is the top seed in Class A. York holds down the top spot in B. Wahoo is seeded first in C1. Ponca is the top seed in C2. 26-0 Kennesaw is the top seed in D1. And Fall City Sacred Heart holds down the top spot in D2. The boys state tournament is set for next week in Lincoln. The girls NSAA state tournament begins tomorrow in the capital city. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. In the studio, I'm Dave Schroeder. A Nebraska State Trooper says the 8-year-old child cited in a school superintendent's assault is a student in her district. Court records say 61-year-old Paula Sissel is charged with misdemeanor assault stemming from a November 13th incident. Patrol Sergeant Brian Eads said that it's his understanding that the assault occurred when Sissel was attempting some corrective action with the student. Sissel is superintendent of the Garden County Schools District. Police say they've arrested two boys suspected of fatally shooting an Omaha 17-year-old and wounding another. Omaha police say detectives arrested the 14- and 15-year-old boys on suspicion of first-degree murder and related crimes. 
Their names haven't been released. They're suspect or suspected of killing Zachary Parker and wounding Devin Darnell on Sunday evening. Recently, the University of Nebraska system announced a round of budget cuts after the governor recommended an $11 million cut to funding this year and a $23 million reduction to next year's appropriation, even after the university system had taken steps to close a $46 million gap created in part by previous funding cuts and rising costs. In an interview Tuesday with the Rural Radio Network, University System President Dr. Hank Bounds offered this example of how damaging future cuts may be. I've had a number of conversations with people across the state, and we know that part of the issue that we're facing is because commodity prices are low. And so cutting the university, the place that prepares people to go into the workforce, would be like a farmer that says, well, we're at $3 corn, so we're just not going to buy fertilizer this year, or we're not going to invest in pesticide. And you know what that outcome would look like if, if farmers chose to do that. Cutting the university, cutting higher in, in, in general is, is analogous to that point. Examples of cuts being made across the system include the elimination of positions on campuses, cutting various sports programs, the closure of the Haskell Agricultural Laboratory, and deep cuts to the Rural Futures Institute. Put our app on your phone and listen to podcasts and on-demand audio on your schedule. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Cargill makes a strategic investment in the future of animal agriculture by investing in Canthus, a startup company that has developed facial recognition software for cattle and other livestock operations. And the Rural Radio Network has an exclusive first look. I'm Clay Patton. Joining us from Canthus is David Hunt. And David, where you're in Ireland a lot of the time, it's been somewhat of a, a distance relationship that we've had to establish this interview, but thank you for being on with us today. And talk to us about how Canthus's cattle facial recognition technology works. Sure, and, and thanks very much for, for having me, Clay. And while two of the founders are based in Ireland, we, we do have an office in California, and one of our co-founders is also in Ottawa as well. So we have, we have a reasonable presence in, in North America, despite being most of the people in, in Ireland. And just to describe how, what we do and how it works, um, effectively we're, we're installing CCTV systems in, in dairy barns and then using facial recognition techniques to track and identify and follow all the individual animals in the herd. So we, use, we do this by, by using a number of different uh, approaches and combining them. So regardless of whether we can see the cow's face or just see its body, um, we still know which cow is which. And how we do that, so for each individual cow, we set up a visual ID profile that includes what its pell pattern looks like and what its facial features are like. And occasionally we also read the ear tags just to, to boost the confidence threshold that it is definitely that animal. And that enables us to get pretty accurate uh, ID of each individual animal. And currently we ID each individual animal in the herd 30 times a second. And then we put all of those individual IDs together once a second to assess what the animal is doing. So if we see a rate of change of pixels around the muzzle, we know the animal has taken a bite of food, for example. 
and the trials that you've done, the producers' reaction to them, have they been able to catch sick cattle quicker? Uh, are they being able to closely monitor their feed intake to better balance rations or anything? Yeah, like there's a whole range of things like that we've been doing. Um, so first of all, when we first installed the system, in every dairy we've installed, we've generally found that there are big issues in the dairy that the farmer didn't know about, principally because they can't be observing all the cows at all the time during the day. And um, to give you examples of the type of thing I'm talking about, uh, we have yet to do an install in a dairy where we found the cows were getting enough water. Uh, almost every install we've done, one of the first things we've done is tell the farmer, hey, uh, you need to get war- more water out for these cows. They're constantly looking for water and there's not enough access for the at the trough and the dominant cows are hogging the trough space to the detriment of the um, more subordinated cows. But in terms of day-to-day recurring, uh, it's exactly as you kind of suggested. Um, the minute an animal stops feeding and stops drinking, you start losing production. So to be able to spot that immediately enables us to find animals with individual issues. And it's also incredibly important to be able to stop to find those things at herd level. And one of the more amusing things that came out of our, our diligence with Cargill is that the sort of herd level analytics um, had much higher value than we initially realized. And it's sort of use cases such as, you know, if you have a certain feed formulation and the price of barley drops, for example, and you decide to maximize your inclusion rate of barley in your feed formulation in order to lower your overall feed costs, well, your feed formulation calculator can't actually tell you if the end product will be palatable for the cows. So one of the big gains we got was every time you put out a new feed mix, seeing how the cows respond to that. Uh, We've also had a a really bizarre one in our uh, test install that we're still not fully sure what the causative factors are. But basically, we found that there were two brothers that fed their cows, and one brother fed from the open end of the barn, uh, back towards the back of the barn, and out again in a U. And the other brother drove the feed uh, uh, wagon in and fed from the back of the barn going out. For reasons we don't understand, the cows had a stronger sustained feed intake when they were fed from the back of the barn out rather than you putting down the feed from the open end of the barn going to the back. Whatever reason, they just liked you going to the back of the barn before giving them their food. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't know why, but, you know, when we mucked around with that, we got sustained feed intake when we got the other brother to start feeding uh, from the back out as well. So I just give that example just to highlight there's all sorts of factors impacting a cow's feed intake that we're just not aware of simply because we can't watch them that closely and pay that close attention to them. But thankfully, with emerging technologies like ours, it it does facilitate an ability to pay that close attention to each individual animal, which is, of course, better for the animal and also better for the farmer's productivity and profitability. That again, David Hunt, one of the founders of Canthus, a facial recognition tech company for cattle. Keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. Back on the Rural Radio Network, Joe Teal of Great Plains Commodities is unavailable today. Moderate pressure in the livestock complex today, especially led by triple-digit losses in feeder cattle as well as lean hogs. 
the uh, strong losses in uh, the trade in hog futures created the end-of-the-month weakness for the entire complex, growing concern that additional market pressure will quickly develop in all the nearbys as the futures broke through the support levels. That totally erased the market rally seen over the last couple of weeks and may bring added softness to the entire markets. However, it is the end of the month, and a trading month uh, tomorrow may bring renewed buying back into the market. Cattle sales today numbered uh, quite a few. As we saw a moderate trade develop in the country, mostly at 126 live basis in Texas and Kansas, 126 to 127 in Nebraska, and 127 in Colorado. These prices were $1 to $2 lower than last week. Saw some dress sales in Nebraska at 204 as well. The feeder cattle futures had moderate pressure throughout the tr- trading session, and end-of-the-month position squaring was the main focus for those losses today. That might even add more widespread pressure tomorrow, too, but that's anybody's guess. Taking a look at livestock estimates, the slaughter, week-to-date through Wednesday, 350,000 cattle, and that would be 3,000 more than the same uh, week a year ago. Meanwhile, hog slaughter projected at 1,369,000 is 38,000 more than a year ago. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Named at the Nebraska State Fair. Good afternoon. I'm Shaley Peters joining you now on the Rural Radio Network. And yesterday, the Nebraska State Fair announced their partnership with Tom Dinsdale Automotive. They now have naming rights to the Cattle Barn. And I caught up with Tom Dinsdale first yesterday and talked to him about why they're a good fit for the Cattle Barn. Well, I grew up in Palmer, Nebraska, and uh, with an agricultural background, we uh, Work seven days a week raising cattle and, uh, you know, farming, putting up hay and uh, irrigating and and greasing windmills and doing all the things that you have to do. It's a pretty good fit. Plus, I worked for Anheuser-Busch for a long time, and having the bar here is a pretty good fit. Tom talked about the fact that they've been very active in the Nebraska State Fair, and this just amplifies that. That's exactly right. We come out here and... And have had a display uh, uh, ever since the fair has been here. And uh, this just gives us a little more exposure. And uh, it's also a great place to be. Dinsdale said they're also looking forward to being able to use the building outside of the Nebraska State Fair. We hope to. We'd like to have some parties out here, either for our employees or, or customers. So we'll just see what happens. I then had a chance to catch up with Nebraska State Fair's brand-new executive director, Lori Cox. And, of course, just two weeks ago, naming rights to the Swine Barn were sponsored by Aurora Cooperative. And so she reiterated the importance of these sponsors and their relationships. We're pretty excited about it, I have to admit. Uh, The Tom Dinsdale group has... Uh, graciously come forward and uh, provided us yet another naming rights sponsorship for the cattle barn here at Nebraska State Fairgrounds as well as Bonner Park. So uh, that tradition of continuing naming rights and partners, long-term partners into our future is really exciting. Cox also talked about how diversity comes into play with these sponsorships and how exactly Dinsdale Automotive will be able to utilize the cattle barn outside of the Nebraska State Fair. 
Yes, I think the most important thing about our partnerships is that we have a diverse background of different partners that come to us for all sorts of different reasons. And certainly um, the Dinsdale family has a long history with Nebraska agriculture and the support of ag. And so it's, it's just fitting that they should be part of the beef barn and all things that are hosted here. All of these naming rights partners have the opportunity to uh, be involved and engaged with the activities that go on within the four walls of these buildings, whether it's the Swine Barn, which is now Aurora Cooperative uh, sponsorship, or if it's uh, something like Pinnacle Bank sponsorship or Five Points Bank sponsorship of those particular venues. So they are very similar in many ways and probably have most opportunity to build those partnerships in, in name notoriety uh, throughout those various uh, relationships that they develop with all the people that get to use these facilities. And finally, I couldn't help but ask, having two press conferences within two weeks from the Nebraska State Fair, if the sheep barn was up next. Everyone wants to know what's going on with the sheep barn. Oh, the pressure is on us for sure. And and uh, we certainly have uh, some irons in the fire on the sheep barn. Uh, no promises to uh, any kind of announcement in the, in the coming weeks, certainly. But uh, I can tell you that we are moving on it. Again, hearing from Tom Dinsdale of Tom Dinsdale Automotive and Nebraska State Fair Executive Director Lori Cox as the cattle barn has now been renamed to the Tom Dinsdale Automotive Cattle Barn out at the Nebraska State Fair. For more information, visit RuralRadio.com. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Big rally in wheat today. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network talking with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter, This Week in Grain. Did you like the close today uh, on how uh, wheat ended the day? No, a couple of things I didn't like. One, I didn't like how uh, we closed, obviously, 10 off the highs. Now, that you know is a function more of how quickly the markets are moving up there. The second thing was the beans didn't really move. You know, we, we essentially closed right where we opened. We were up a nickel on the old crop July and the, the March contracts, but uh, that November just seems to be stuck at 1032 right now. And even though it's making higher closes, it doesn't seem to have the one have the, the push up that the rest of the complex does maybe it's just waiting on what's what the brazilian numbers will be i'd imagine we'll see this kind of price action through the wazi next week but once we get through that you kind of got to continue to feed the bull and i i wonder how much we'll get uh that'll help the market until you know early april when we'll start talking conditions we uh saw the may corn contract close above the 200 day moving average any significance in that Oh, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's probably a nice stat for some of the journalists out there to write about. From a trading perspective, that really hasn't been much of a, of a level that I think has provided support or resistance in the past. Uh, I, I look at really the more the behavior of the July and some of the deferred futures contracts that really you're hitting levels where guys are selling. I read a lot of newsletters, not just the one I write. You know, read a lot of different different analysts and run programs for them. And, you know, it, it, very few guys had, had uh, orders not get hit today. So whether it be that first cross above 4 bucks in December, July getting above a uh, 390. Um, you know the wheat obviously almost touching for 550, and then the beans doing really nothing. Um, but all in all, I, I think this is just setting us up for uh, uh, the real party that'll start somewhere this summer. Because right now, I mean, the the, the weather of Brazil and Argentina is a, that's a story. That's been enough, I think, to move us 10 to 15 percent in price. But to get this thing to really go, we need to talk about global hack 
uh, a big slice out of global production, and that's going to come from the U.S. So uh, Argentina is essentially Nebraska. They they grow about as much corn as you guys do out there. So uh, they're going to take a 10 to 15 percent yield hit. It'll show up on the on the global numbers that we'll get in uh, a week from tomorrow. Uh, but they're not going to be uh, fantastically, uh, you know, changing the story in the shorter run. We've kind of made and hit my objective levels in the short term, so I might be looking to be a little more cautious here. I'd look for July to possibly run up as high as four, but I find it difficult to think we're going to get through that number um, until the U.S. growing season starts. Thanks for the comments. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com. And one other note with the grain markets today, soybean meal continues its relentless climb. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network.